It's okay. All right, everyone, we're live uh, for Small Talk again. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for downloading the podcast and listening. And uh, and if you haven't done so, then please do that. Please go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and check it out there. And, of course, you can always find all those links at smalltalk.tv. So uh, tonight, our guest, of course, Reggie from St. Paul, Minnesota, from his wife's mm-hmm. office, and uh, Rebecca, fresh off of an insanity workout and a P90X workout. There she is in just our daughter's ab. room. Oh, just the ab workout just from ab. P90X. P90X, yeah. Gotcha. As if that makes it any better, because <laughs> Reggie and I would absolutely not be found doing that, that's for sure. And... Uh, so uh, tonight, uh, we're going to get into what is really our wheelhouse, the three of us. Uh, the three of us have worked in the criminal justice system for quite some time. For me, it's been 22 years. Reggie, for you, uh, it's been 23 years you've worked in the criminal justice field. And uh, Rebecca, when you think about maternity leave and all the rest of it, how much time would you say that you spent working in the criminal justice field? Probably about 17 or 18 years. I mean, even when I was on maternity leave, I was still doing some contract work. So, yeah. So here we are sitting here with 60 years plus of juvenile justice, criminal justice experience. And so I wanted to spend a little time on that tonight and talk about the lessons that we've learned, some life lessons that we've learned from our careers. And I imagine any type of career that you're in, you're going to learn some life lessons, um, I think that we're in a a career where I remember someone saying I worked with a guy he was at a medium security juvenile facility and he was done. He was getting out of it. Yeah, I think he was getting his finance degree or econ degree and he was going to doing job interviews to get into the financial world and he would tell people what he was doing for a living and they were like, dude, if you can do that, you can do anything. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it is one of those fields where there's a lot of stress. Ultimately, I think you learn a lot. And so tonight we're going to share some of those things that we've learned. So um, we, we each have some things that we've learned. We haven't even shared these with each other. So we're going to talk about these and uh, and maybe even just a little bit about how you got into this line of work. I can tell you and, and the people who are watching and listening I had no idea what I would end up doing with my life. I remember taking that test in high school that took an inventory of all your skills, your strengths, your weaknesses, whatever. And a few weeks later, I remember getting the results back and I got a code. It was like a three digit number. And you would take that code and you would look at this sheet and you'd find your code and it would tell you the career path that that maybe you should get yourself on based on this assessment. my number, my code, I found it, and it basically said, we have no idea what you should do. <laughs> this is totally inconclusive. So here I am graduating, and I don't know what I want to do. So anyway, ultimately, I found myself working in a boat factory on the, um, uh, in, in Crystal River, Florida, and there was a guy at my church that worked at a juvenile prison on the night shift, and I thought – I asked about the job, you know, found out about it a little bit. I thought, this sounds like a great gig here. I could maybe get a job there. They have air conditioning. It pays about a dollar more an hour. 
I could watch kids sleep at night uh, who are behind bars and probably could catnap a little bit myself. Like, where do I sign up for that gig? And so that's how I got into it. And here I sit 22 years later. Uh, I do consulting work. So does Reggie. And Rebecca, Rebecca said, I've had enough. And she went back to school, got a second bachelor's degree and master's degree, and now is a speech pathologist. But she's still working with kiddos, that's for sure. So 22 years later, what can I say are some of the major things that, that I have learned? Life lessons. All right. So I'm going to start with this one. I'm going to start and give mine. I'm going to ask for Reggie and Rebecca's input on it, and then uh, we'll go to Rebecca next, and she'll tell us what hers are, and then we'll finish up with Reggie tonight. And so first one for me is that everyone is an expert in our line of work. Everyone's an expert. So if you just ask anyone how to solve crime, especially if it's juvenile crime, it's like everyone has an answer to that. And typically the answer is uh, along the lines of, well, it generally has two words in it, uh, beat and uh, the, the three-letter word for someone's posterior, uh, which I won't say here on this family show. That's how you solve juvenile crime. Just, just put it to them like we used to get it when we were kids. <clears throat> and let's face it, if that were the answer, then there would be no juvenile crime. There would be no crime at all. I, I well, there would be a little bit of crime for, for all the people that are just doing time out. But I can tell you that where I grew up, where everyone was getting whooped, no, there would have been no juvenile crime. So everyone's a, everyone's an expert. And I loved reading a few years ago an article, gosh, probably 10, 15 years ago now, an article by a prominent criminologist who said he doesn't like to tell anyone what he does for a living because everyone then immediately starts telling him, how to solve crime. So he would just tell him that he's a proctologist. Imagine like he, he's on an airplane sitting next to someone. Hey, what do you do? He'd tell me he's a proctologist because the conversation would just end right there. I could picture him just putting on his headphones and then that would be it. He could go to sleep. No more conversation. So everyone seems to be an expert. Now I don't know if it's just because uh, people raise their own children and they have their ideas about what works in terms of keeping them in line, or we all have the experience of being parented. And we might be able to look back and say, well, this worked for me or that worked for me. This is what kept me straight. But everyone develops an opinion about this and everyone's an expert. And it's a little annoying because I wouldn't walk into, let's say, the office of an investment banker and start spewing out what he ought to do and how he ought to do his job and what the solutions are. Well, I wouldn't give them unsolicited advice, but it can certainly come the direction of someone who does what we do, I believe. So, uh, Reggie, what do you think about that? How does that, how does that one hit you? Oh, yeah, I mean, it lands perfectly because uh, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people I've met in correction are some autonomous, opinionated people. They don't want you to tell them what to do. Well, they know exactly what they need to do, and they know what will work to help alleviate or eliminate certain behaviors and crimes and things of that nature. So that, that's spot on for me, at least in the experiences that I've had. Yeah. Rebecca, how about, how about for you? That was actually one of my points, um, was that everyone's got an opinion, and um, usually it's based upon how they were raised or how they raised their kids. And so I think people compare 
the jobs that we do in juvenile justice or criminology to parenting. And while, you know, I mean, I worked at a therapeutic wilderness program where it, it was residential. Those kids were there um, and, and our counselors actually lived with our girls 24 hours a day, five days a week. They were lucky if they got two days off. Um, so in a sense, they probably did in some ways take on some parenting roles, but you're not parenting those kids. So you can't just take parenting principles and just adapt them to criminal behavior. I mean, there's, there's a whole nother set of things going on there. And so it's funny when somebody will just go, Oh, oh you just need to do this. Oh, okay. Cause if it was that easy, we just fix all the criminals. Right. Right. But it's not that easy. So, yeah. If you ever work in a residential facility and maybe someone's watching right now, don't, and you're a supervisor, one thing you don't ever want to tell your staff is go in there and treat those kids as if they were your own. Mm. That's probably a good way to get a DCF call. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get, 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 a, get a complaint. But here, here's, here's the thing. You know, after a bunch of training and whatnot, here's, here's what I say is a life lesson. Okay, I can gripe about everyone's an expert, but here's the life lesson. People are experts on themselves. That's who they're generally the expert on. Like, and what do I mean by that? Well, if you work with someone who uh, maybe you're in sort of a, it doesn't have to be formal, but like a counseling role and you're helping them make some changes in their life and whatnot, you can't just charge in, or even if this is just your own kids, you can't just charge in with, with all of your solutions and expect them to just take those solutions, uh, thank you for them and start implementing them in their lives. They're really probably the best source for what might work for them. We spend our time just really trying to build relationship, build rapport with that person so that we can get the door open so that we can find out truly like what's going on in their head, what's going on in their lives. They know that stuff. We don't. You got to let people be the expert on their own situation. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, number two for me is, uh, let me articulate this a couple of ways. You know, when I first wrote it down, I wrote down uh, two sentences here. No drive-by interventions. No drive-by interventions. We have to do life with people. And... It, and, and then I started thinking about what, what's a more salient way of saying this or what's what's maybe my gripe about this is that I've watched way too many people take things that are not simple and try to make them simple, such as, well, you know, that uh, that kid has committed uh, this crime. They, uh, they they burglarized the house. You know, they knew it was wrong. Uh, they just don't need to do it anymore. Uh, and then we start to dig into what's going on in their lives, all the factors that are going on in their lives, the risk factors. And you, you realize all the brokenness in the family. You realize the substance abuse issues that are going on around them and in their lives uh, as well. Uh, you realize their educational issues, their temperamental and personality issues that they have, those factors that, that, that play into what they ended up doing. You, you look at just the, their thinking patterns, their habits of thinking, uh, their, their, um, their attitudes, their beliefs that are deep down that 
I don't know, maybe they've developed those from people teaching them these things or, you know, this idea that it's only illegal if you get caught. I mean, how many times have we heard that, seen that play out? You look at their friends. There's so many factors that play into someone landing themselves in big trouble, whether it's in the criminal justice system or not. And it is way too easy just to say things like they just need to get it together. <laughs> they, just need, they just need to get their life together. And it's like, here's how it plays out in the criminal justice system. We say to kids, we, we end up giving them a treatment plan, and we say things like, all right, I need you to get your school grades up. I need you to quit hanging out with the kids you hang out with. I need you to find a better way to deal with your family members. I need you to find a better way to cope with your stress. You, you, we've got to explore some ways for you to spend your free time in a more productive way. Like just start rattling off like five or six major life things. And if you did that to me, you said, George, there's like six things that you need to get together. I'd be like, hold on now. Hold on. I, I need to like I need to sleep on this. I, I need to take a few days. I need I need to take some time and evaluate and figure out whether I really want to do all that stuff. Is it even possible to do all that stuff? But but if I did that and then you said, no, 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 you don't you don't have time to think about it because uh, we've taken your freedom from you and you're not going to get it back until you do all of these things. Honestly, I think for me, one of the first things I would do is I'd start plotting how am I going to pull the wool over these people's eyes? Mm. Probably what I would do. So, you know, swooping in with a, <clears throat> a great speech or lecture or some, some quick intervention that we've just come up with to really try to help people change their lives around. I just, I don't see a whole lot of merit in that. And because change is a process, it's not an event. Mm -hmm. If it's an event, then there's a term for that. It's called a miracle. And then, it, and, and they're few and far between. That's, that's why they're miracles. Yeah. That's a good point, man. I mean, seriously, when you stop and think about it, um, even the interventions that we apply, they don't, they often don't fit the context of the world that the person lives in, right? There's certain skills that you know we we teach, just as a generic kind of one size fit all thing that don't have real application within certain neighborhoods or environments or communities and stuff. And yet, it's supposed to work, right? I mean, it works for me, and and yet we assume that when there's not success with it, that there's some kind of um, there's some failure on the part of the user, as opposed to really taking into context, like you said. That person, the whole person, every facet of them, and their environment and their surroundings. If we can do that a little bit more, maybe we won't start, uh, we'll stop this cookie cutter model and make it a little more individualized, right? I love how you build a rapport with, with folks. Uh, the relationship is the work. I know that seems crazy to mention that within correction. And yeah, if you're a guard walking a tier or you know a guy that's supervising 30 kids inside of a living unit, it ain't so much that you can build deep, meaningful relationship with each one of them, but you can treat them like human beings. Mm. You can set a right. some level of expectation for behaviors and, and like attitudes and stuff, and hold people accountable to that. Not in some like punitive way, but just be a model of what you want to see. Mm -hmm. Also, ha have a little—I I use this word a lot—show show some grace, right? Remove that judgment. And try to get to know the individual and what trips they trigger. And even if they what you think is healthy, at least it's to get them motivated and moving in the right direction. 
because change is a lot different than compliance. It's like two ends of a spectrum. Yeah, I think I think you got to also figure out, you know, behavior. Behavior is purposeful. You know, all behavior is purposeful. So what? What meet, what need were they meeting when they when they had these particular behaviors or this pattern of behavior? Um, and then have them try to figure out what is it that they want to change, can change. Um, and, and I love the point that you just made about we teach these kids skills, you know, that we think that they should have, in, you know, in a lot of sectors of the world, the of life. Yeah, it is important to have certain skills. But some of those kids live in families where if they go back home and they talk in a certain manner, that's okay for maybe school or a job place. It doesn't work in their neighborhood. It doesn't work with their family group. Like it's going to be rougher for them if they, if they don't, they, those kids build up. Sometimes they build up a toughness or a wall because that's what keeps them. Okay. That keeps them surviving. Um, and so we can't expect to change them totally for every, every facet of life, we can teach them some new skills and teach them that there's a certain place to use those skills, but to change them to meet our ideal is not going to work. Um, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's, that's, that's where I was at. I think a lot of times, especially in juvenile correction, but uh, a lot of people get in stance and their frustration comes because they kind of, they're trying to re-raise somebody else's child. Mm -hmm. And, and that ain't your job, right? And it ain't possible for you to do. I mean, yeah, you might have it for an extended amount of time. But beliefs and values and attitudes, th those things are like formed over a long period of time. And it takes a lot of life experiences to be able to shift and change those. Mm -hmm. so the idea that you're going to, you need to re a child and instill your values in them, but you're just going to be frustrated as all get out. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that they, I, I just think there's a lot of interesting conversation to be had around the number one risk factor for criminal behavior in most studies. It seems to come out as being um, uh, antisocial, right? Self-centered, let's say uh, attitudes, values, beliefs. Uh, you know, it's, so it's 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 your thinking. It's your thinking at various levels. Like there's deep-seated sort of attitudes, beliefs, principles, values that we have. Uh, that stuff is just not going to change overnight. What would be easier to change? What would be easier to change? Someone's attitudes and beliefs or the law? Well, I can tell you that laws can change really, really quick. And what's illegal one day may not be illegal the next day. I mean, look no further than the lady that just went to jail yesterday because she opened up her salon and was like, I've got to feed my family. And I've got other people at my job who need to feed their kids as well. So uh, I always think it's a very interesting thing when we get kids or adults into the correctional system because we have deemed that their thinking is wrong, their attitudes and beliefs, all that stuff inside of them is wrong. So now we're gonna poke and prod them for any number of months or years to try to fix them and C.S. Lewis actually even said in a great um, article that he wrote called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, he said it's probably a more humanitarian approach to just allow them to have the just desserts. Let them go ahead and serve out their time and quit poking and prodding them 
try to figure out what's wrong with them. Um, because sometimes that can devolve to a level that's not even, it's not even humanitarian. All right. And then uh, Reggie, uh, my third one is, uh, I love what you just said, man, because it goes right along with it. This is the way I wrote it. Kids need Jesus. Okay. So mm -hmm. this is why I wrote it this way. Because when I first started and I walked in, I'll never forget that first night on the night shift. I felt like I had just walked into a corridor of hell. I, you open that big heavy door, you go inside there, there's all these bars, there's, there's, there's fingers coming through them, it's loud, everyone's yelling. Like, oh my God, what did I just sign up for? And I just thought, man, these kids just need Jesus. Now, I end up with all types of training opportunities and everything else, and I realize, okay, people can get their life together, and they can live out a life where they can function and follow the law, obviously, without having Jesus. Okay, There's plenty of people that don't have Jesus that are better men than myself. So, so why do I still put it that way? Because of the word that you said, when I say Jesus, I say grace. Kids need grace. Like not every moment needs to be a teachable moment when you're parenting a child or you are working with them in a facility or you're a, a counselor to them in some form. Not everything has to be a teachable moment. Sometimes you just need to lighten up, you need to realize that their prefrontal cortex is mush, that they're, they're not working with a fully developed brain. Uh, give them the grace that they need. We can't just be harping on them all the time. By the way, this is not just a kid thing, right? The people that are around us, and maybe they need grace too. And maybe that starts with realizing who the most messed up person you know is. And I would say um, that's probably you, <laughs> right? You, you stare at that person in the mirror every day. I guess to some degree that's a religious viewpoint, but but I think it's actually a psychological one as well. Because if I go back to the first point I made, everyone's an expert about themselves. I don't know at any given time exactly what's going on in someone's mind, but they know. And it's a very common thing for people to have some stuff floating around in their head that they're not going to say in front of company. Yeah. They're not going to admit to it. They're not going to admit to their arrogance. They're not going to admit to their bigotry. Um, they're, they're biased. They're not going to admit to those things, but it's there and they know it. They're the expert on that. So if you take that and you say, I'm very, very broken. And here's where it turns into a religious point for me. I say, I'm very, very broken, more broken than I know Rebecca is or Reggie or anyone else. Cause I really know myself, but at the same time, I'm also still cherished. I'm still valued. Mm. I'm still loved then that in turn would allow me to be more gracious to others. Now I have to will myself into that because you, you start getting into my hot buttons. I'm going to forget all that stuff really quick <laughs> and I'm going to need grace for forgetting it. There's, there's a reason why Dante put betrayal, you know, basically at the bottom of hell next to the, to the devil. There's, there's some things, you know, we could categorize the things that could happen to us. And for Dante, the epitome was betrayal. There's some things where you can just forget your religion. You can forget all of that. And then you're going to need grace for that, for your response <laughs> to that. 
but we need to be able to give that to people or we'll just never get anywhere with them. So those are my three. Those are my three. I've got a bunch more, but those are my three. Uh, everyone's an expert. So don't be the expert. Don't, don't be giving everybody unsolicited advice all the time. You're not the expert on someone else and you're not the expert on my line of work and I'm not expert on yours. Uh, we don't need to make things simple that are not really simple by doing things like drive-by interventions. We actually got to really do life with people because change is a process, not event. And kids need Jesus. Kids need grace is what they really need. Yeah. I want you to think about all three of those points. I mean, it really boils down to, if you can look at the, especially working with kids, but just people in, in the criminal justice system in particular, we ask them to give up a lot. Like we demand them to give up a lot in order to regain their freedom, right? But we never take the time to find out what they got out of what they were doing or figure out ways to replace it, mm -hmm. right? Like what you spoke of in, in our current literature in our profession is called antisocial cognition, antisocial temperament, right? I mean, it's speaking to kind of the heart of the man, but rather than demonizing that, they were getting something from what they were doing. Rebecca said that earlier. Well, if I give it up, then there's a void. And I can, I can fake it till I make it. Right? I, can, I can do some compliance stuff. And most people, when they make that shift, they overcorrect, right? They go from being, you know, little thug to now they want to be the, the church boy, right? That's not sustainable because it's not realistic. And you hadn't truly the void that was created by giving up what you have. If we look at it from that perspective, that they're getting something from, something from what they're doing. We may as well. How about we take the time to figure out what it is they're getting and see an alternative way, a healthier way of feeling that without hurting themselves or other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you so so that actually on a macro level, I would say I'm not going to expound on this, but this is one of my other points. Instead of asking how do we prevent criminality, we need to be thinking. How can we instill virtue? Mm. That's, a, that's a very different thing, right? Because it's easy for us to say to, to kids in particular, if we're working with them, we'll say, okay, man, I need you to avoid negativity. Well, I would rather actually say, okay, what are some ways that you can pursue positivity? Because that, that puts you in an active role, not just a passive role. It's, it's like, uh, it's like the, golden, the golden rule, right? Do unto others. As you would have them do unto you. Jesus is not the first person that said that. Right? That that was that was old wisdom, but prior to him, it was all don't do to other people things that you don't want them to do to you. And that was a very different thing. You could be passive in that. But but Jesus comes along and says, No, do do to other people what you would have them do. So just say, go go do some good stuff for people and to people. All right, Rebecca, what do you got? Um, so personally, and this is, this has helped out in, in my second career as well as my own personal life. Um, I'm not responsible for making people change or accept help. And my success or failure as a professional doesn't hinge upon the success of the individuals in treatment. And that was, that was something that was hard because I started out in juvenile justice when I was, I think 20 years old. Um, and you know, my frontal cortex still wasn't fully developed. Right. Um, and here I am trying to help people 
you know, make changes for their life. And I don't know that I even had my life real well at that point. Um, but I took it hard. The first few, um, kids that I, you know, that I worked with for a period of time. And then, you know, they walked out of those doors and next thing, you know, they got in trouble again. And of course, and, you know, I took that personally, like, oh my gosh, I didn't do enough or, you know, I should have said something different or whatever. Um, but now, you know, I realize looking back on all of that, um, that's not my responsibility. It is not my responsibility to change somebody and understanding, you know, through training and many years of, um, you know, working with, with kids and, and adults, you know, they've got to want to make some changes and they've got to figure out that a change is, is important and they've got to figure out how they want to make those changes. And we can guide them, um, which leads me to my second one. And my stepmom used to say this to me um, when can, I was- can I, back, can I back up right yeah, there? Yeah. One second. Reggie mm -hmm. might have something else to say as well. I said to Reggie a few weeks ago, the interesting thing about our line of work is that when a kid leaves a program or a kid is done with treatment or whatever and they do well, we're like, yeah, yeah, look what a great job we did with that kid. Right? <laughs> right. And then another kid leaves and they're back in jail in no time. Then we're really quick to be like, man, I don't know about that. I saw that coming, man. We did everything <laughs> we possibly could for that kid, man. We, gosh, after all we did for that kid, right? We're not going to own that. Right. But we will definitely, we will definitely own the, uh, the success. That's for sure. Well, the thing I'd add to that is what you speak of, Rebecca, is kind of a, a cornerstone of, of practice and motivation and endurance. When we talk about the spirit and there's all these different pieces, but there's one piece in particular called acceptance. And it has four kind of subcategories that fit exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This whole idea of, uh, absolute worth that every person, because they are human, they have worth and value. Right. And if we can see a person that way, then it's not our job to judge them, right? We we, we, we can convict them of certain things, but we don't have to condemn them for right. the things that they do, right? And so I don't have to go home wearing, wearing that on my sleeve. Right. The other part is support for autonomy. And, and really what that's speaking to is acknowledging or accepting the fact that People gonna do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Seriously, I mean, mm -hmm. you can tell grown folks or kids to do nothing; they're gonna do exactly what they want to do. Okay. So, by my acceptance of that, I don't have to own it. I don't have to carry that around with me. But what Miller and them argue in the book is, it has to expand beyond just my acceptance. I need you to know that you're making choices. Mm -hmm. right? So we have to actively help them recognize the power and control that they do have in their lives. Right. Yeah. Not, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we can show them what uh, what consequence comes from a particular choice that they make. Mm -hmm. But also, they need to see that they are making choices. Right. Right. We talk about limited scope. The other piece, you know, the whole idea of staying strength-based, but the biggest one is the part about having accurate empathy, mm -hmm. right? The ability to see how they see the world, not how we think they should see it or what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And you combine all that together, they, what they argue in, in motivation interviewing is that they can help to prevent burnout, mm -hmm. to just really embrace that concept of Oh yeah, with, with the people that we serve. Here's where I think we get in trouble, Reggie. I mentioned this to you the other day when you were kind of showing me some of your training slides. Mm -hmm. That that piece of acceptance, like accepting that everyone has value, right? I don't know if you remember what I said to you the other day. Where we're getting ourselves in trouble is we we might be willing to say yes, everyone has value, 
But here's the trouble. In the back of your mind, you might be thinking, yeah, you got value, but you don't have any value to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's it, where folk get themselves in trouble. You said this, uh, Reggie, when we had the show on uh, bias. I think the title I gave that one was Feeding the Bias Beast. You talked about you believe that as a general rule, and maybe you have to fight against it a little bit, but people are self-serving. Mm-hmm. And it's a very self-serving thought. Well, yeah, you've got value, but you don't, you don't have value to me. Yeah. And then that's where people just start trampling mm-hmm. all over and, and breaking them more and more and more and more. It, um, it, and, you know, but we could all probably say we've been in situations maybe where we feel like we're broken and, and now we're just being broken more and more and more and more. And I, I certainly can think of a situation like that where I feel like ultimately what was trying to be stripped from me was, was my dignity. Mm. And it seems to me that dignity comes right before hope in terms mm. of the, the last thing that you've got to cling on to. Like if you, it, it's like dignity that's stripped away. Okay. Well, I have to have some hope then for the future. Maybe I can even regain that. But if hope is gone, that's when, that's when folk really, that's when they really lose it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I got to agree with you. I'm sorry, Rebecca. I got a little long way. Hey, let me, let me just, no, let like me that. bring in a couple of things. First of all, let me, some a couple of comments here. Um, I love the fact that Keith said hello. I met Keith the other day, yesterday, at Lowe's. So I walk into Lowe's. Did I tell you this, Reggie? Mm. No, this really caught me off guard, right? So I walk into Lowe's, and uh, so here, here's a gentleman at the customer service counter, an employee there. And so he looks at me. He's like, hey, man, what's up? I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? You know, I don't know. And then he says, don't you have a podcast to be doing right now? <laughs> I was like, oh man, no, that's tomorrow. So I was just I was really thankful that he did that. He said that and I got the opportunity to, to meet him. Uh so, yeah, that was really cool. Uh he told me he enjoyed my background. He liked my background in this whole thing in the video, uh, which tells me he's probably very patriotic like I am, so that's great. And uh, and I'm glad he said something because I am not gonna be about town seeing everybody and be like, hey man, you watch small talk, hey, you look at the podcast, hey, have you downloaded it on Apple Podcast? Yeah, I'm not gonna be doing that. Like I don't wanna be that guy that that's all he talks about. That's like the guy that's selling Amway, quick start, like every Eric, you're like, Oh god, here he comes. He hasn't seen this yet. Let's duck down that aisle over there. He hasn't seen this yet. Maybe we can avoid him. So I, I enjoy that he said that. Here's the other thing though, uh, the other comment, Glenn. Ask this question. This is great. What about the people who are released early because of COVID-19? So released from prison. Some are being arrested not too long after for some uh, for some time uh, in, in crime. Okay, so so what uh, I'll tell you here. Here's what I think is if a person is able to go home on house arrest and they feel comfortable enough to let them go, then personally, I think they should stay there on house arrest. Because to me, part of it's an economic sort of thing. Mm. If you're saying that they're good enough to go to the house, then I want to know that there's been sufficient change in that person's thinking, and therefore also their behavior, because thinking drives behavior, that they are no longer a threat to society, and if that's the case, then keep them there if they go home. Because 
I don't want to keep them locked up otherwise, unless it's some, like some really heinous stuff where they really just got to get their, their punishment. But why would you let someone else got some really heinous stuff that they did anyway? And they, they got to, so, so I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I, I don't go along with it. I think you should just stay right there. The, uh, the prison ought to go ahead and make whatever precautions that they need to put in place and ride it out. And it's very bad optics, obviously, if you're letting out people who've committed major crimes and you're at the same time putting in people who open up a salon. Like that makes no sense. Now, now the salon lady, she went to county jail. She spent a day there. Don't get me wrong. It's not like she went to a federal penitentiary or state penitentiary. It's not. But it's just so it's bad optics. And so then they, they can't be letting out people that are no. seriously habitual offenders that rank really, really high on a, a, on a actuarial based assessment that risks assesses their risks of reoffending. They, they would have to be low level people. And if you're going to do that, then they'll just stay at the house anyway. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, that question, I, I didn't even see it over there, but it, it kind of trips a trigger for me because I mean, there's multiple layers to that. That's why I tripped the trigger for me. One, um, if you've had a person out of society for an extended amount of time, it's vital that you set up some kind of release plan for them, some kind of reentry plan to let them work with their community or, or like resources within them. And you, as a whatever agency, try to collaborate with those those resources to try to give them something to go home to, right? We know from all the evidence within corrections that the first 30, 60 to 90 days that a person released is the scariest time for them likely to reoffend. Why? Because we're sending them home to the exact same environment they left, oftentimes worse, because they may have been a provider in that environment and not even gone for an extended amount of time. So yada, 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 right? So the idea, first and foremost, I would ask what kind of reentry plan was put forward for them or were they just shuffling them out of the jail so that they didn't have to pay the bill if they got sick in the hospital. Second, um, when it comes to that situation, I've, I've, re I've seen a few of those things pop up on Twitter because you may not believe this, but I actually follow quite a few conservatives. <laughs> on Twitter, And there's no evidence to support that. Simply go to Snopes and type in, in Snopes, are COVID released of inmates or offenders committing more crimes? And it'll come back with a big red X that says false. Why? And there's evidence to support that because crime is down in almost every area. And then I can't speak for every situation, but the majority of offenders that were released, at least in Minnesota, and they, we didn't release that many, but in other states based on their plan were elderly people, the ones who were vulnerable based on their age and their health condition. So I can't imagine a 69 year old guy getting out of jail and just going out there, just getting lit. You know what I mean? Just, just, just tearing things up and, going to rob the store that ain't open how old did you say 69 okay well hey, 69 is like the, the the new 49 man i don't know where you've been but, uh, but by the way reggie i think that's a good point but i'm starting to think that you did not watch the full video series that i sent you I didn't. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. okay all right so it was called fall f-a-l-l -L, cabal c-a-b-a-l one through 10. It was a 10 part series. I don't know what happened to part like five. It wasn't in there, but 
<laughs> I don't know, around about part six or seven, they talk about Snopes. Mm. So mm. it's it's worth a look. Okay, okay. Yeah. But I, hey, I, again, I, I appreciate the comment, Glenn. Keep asking those questions. Yeah, it just trips the trigger for me because uh, why do we need to highlight that? Like, one of the lowest classes in our country, you could talk about uh, race or economic class, the bottom of it is the felon. I mean, the bottom of the totem pole. And what do I mean by that? In many places, I mean, I know Florida just gave them the right to vote back. Did they take that back from them again? I don't know. No, no, no. They, they, they have the right to vote. And actually where that's at right now is that one of the conditions in that, in that bill or that, uh, what do you call it? We've, we voted on it, uh, uh, whatever, in that legislation was that they have to pay the restitution. Before they're allowed to vote, and that just got struck down because that would be tantamount to a poll tax. Yeah, right. So, so you don't even have to pay a restitution; you could go ahead and go vote. But think about it: a lot of people have been placed in in jails and prison for things that were illegal then that are legal now. That's and yet right. Those felonies hang over their heads, and it prevents them from working in certain environments. Most times you can't work in any kind of service industry. So you can't even get a job busting tables, I mean, waiting on tables, right? Or any kind of like helping profession. So even if you went to college and bettered yourself, I mean, you got to put some space between you and that felony and hope you get a good crack through the door. So that's why I trust my trigger is this. Um, I told you I'm not a judgmental person and I, I, I try to show grace to a lot of folks. The Lord knows I need it. And if we never give them a second chance, then we've relegated them to the life that they're in forever. Mm -hmm. And they already served a time when they're released, more, more times than not. Do they need to continually be punished? You talked about that uh, humanitarian thing. There's, there's certain elements to, to punishment. One piece is just desserts, right? So, so the crime should fit the punishment. But there should be some kind of rehabilitation as well. But punishment alone don't work. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Right. When I was talking about dignity, you know, something just popped into my mind as well. I got really uncomfortable watching on Facebook when I saw a picture mm. of a man who, he was a black man. And I think that for me, this also, to use your word there, tr triggered me in a big way. Rebecca already knows, because I was on a tirade about this. <laughs> this man... I don't know. They pulled him over on the side of the road. Cops pulled him over. I don't know if it was a high-speed chase. I don't remember all the details. But here's the picture that made it onto social media. The black man, I think he had no shirt on. He had a pair of sweatpants on. He had sand all over him where he got taken down in the ground. Well, he hid in a, in a dirt pile. Okay. It looked like he had urinated himself. I'm thinking maybe... Paid. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe he got tased and that happens. And he's got a couple of deputies behind him and they're leading him off to put him in the car. And that that picture makes it onto social media. And I don't know if it's because I've just spent so long in the criminal justice field. I don't, maybe, but I was outraged at that. I was moderately outraged because we're in the South and – I don't, I don't like, I'll be honest, man. I don't know if this is right or wrong. Maybe I shouldn't even be proud of this, but it wouldn't have bothered me so bad if it was a white person. Okay. And I'm not woke. I am not woke. 
Okay, I'm against being woke, but it just bothered me. What's that? You sleep as hell, huh? <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing: I what I really want for that man is I want him to again retain his dignity. Yeah. Because I want him to go through whatever this process is that he's just now getting himself into so that he can return to society with dignity. And I look at all the comments yeah. that were long, I don't know, hundreds of them, I would like to say. I, that might be an embellishment. And it was just one joke after another about the guy urinating himself. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the Roman Colosseum. Mm. It's horrible. Yeah. But then we took over for Rebecca's time. Go we ahead. Sure yeah, we do that. We do that. We talked about how uh, earlier today, I think, like you really got to get in on this conference. So you got to fight your way in on, on George and Reggie. All right, go ahead. All right. Uh, this one, um, ask more than you tell. So mm -hmm. I learned that, um, especially working with teenage girls, mm -hmm. and especially when we're with teenagers, you – you can tell them things all day long. They're not going to listen to you uh, after about a few minutes. <laughs> they usually shut you out. But asking them good questions and having them start listening to themselves when they're answering those questions and reflecting their answers, oh, my goodness, that that is so much more worth um, your time than lecturing them and telling them all the things that they should be doing and how they should be doing it. Preach just to preach. I love it. <laughs> My mom used to say, uh, and my grandmama too, the Lord, good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. I'm sure you've heard that before. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yep, definitely have. All right, Rebecca, is that your three? Um, the, the last thing I was going to say is um, just that everybody has their own journey. And uh, my stepmom, Donna, used to say to me um, that you can plant the seeds and you can even try to water them, but you can't force the roots to grow or the flowers to blossom. And that was important to me as well. Um, I just had to show up and do, you know, what I what I could do. And I think one of the huge lessons that I learned working at camp at the Therapeutic Wilderness Program um, was always leaving things better than you found them. Um, and so if we went anywhere with our group of girls, it was very important that, you know, we looked around and made sure there was no trash. And if there was trash, we picked it up, even if it wasn't our trash. Um, but I I really think that I took that in and I've really tried and I know I have failed at it probably miserably sometimes, but even in, in my interactions with people, um, try to leave people better than you found them. Don't make them feel any worse. Don't tear them down anymore. Don't lecture them or beat them over the head. Um, just, you know, plant the, plant the seeds, water them, but, but it's up to them to grow. Mm -hmm. I like that. All right, Reggie, we're we're uh, we're gonna wind this thing down, man. And right. you haven't even got started yet, so. Uh, <laughs> want me to hold it to next time? No, I don't. Oh, no, no. I don't. I want you. To, I want you to go on. I'm, I'm just thinking this might be a longer podcast than what I was anticipating, but but I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting with bated breath, though. So. Uh, our, ne our next show is uh, Tuesday at eight, man. We're definitely not waiting until then. So, uh, so what, what do you got? So my life lessons that I learned in corrections are kind of tied in the circumstances. Uh, one of them in particular, the main one, 
uh, I was a new officer, fresh out of the academy. I thought it was my job to write up everybody I saw. I mean, like if I saw an infraction, I thought it was my job to correct them. So I was going around doing that. And guess what happened? Every inmate in that facility hated me. I mean, could not stand me. Just wanted, they would write grievances on me even when I wasn't at work. Right? And that went on for about five months. And then all of a sudden, we went out to the ready room, and this new lieutenant was there. And people, if anybody from Iowa who worked in that system, they know who I'm talking about. This guy named Lieutenant Barnes, kind of a gruff fella. And I mean, he just, uh, most of the people who led that kind of shift meeting, you know, they were really professional and they were kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't even say polite, but this man was surly. He said, his introduction to us was, all right, y'all hadn't seen me since I hadn't been here. My name's Lieutenant Barnes and I hate convicted felons. And he used another word in there instead of convicted. It started with an F, but had the same G at the end. And so we go on. So I'm up in my unit. I know here he goes. It's going to be miserable again. And this guy calls, come up to my case, say, I want to speak with the shift captain. I said, okay. So I radio Lieutenant Barnes. He heard that man's name and he was like, oh, no, I said, well, no, no, no. I have an inmate. What's that? What, what, what is that man's name? I said, I told him his name. He said, you send that fine convicted felon down here to me. As a matter of fact, Mr. Prince, you come on down here with him. So I go down there with him. We get to the office. As soon as the guy walk in there, Lieutenant Barnes opened the book and says, sir, you owe me whole time. When you give me my whole time, I'll listen to what you got to say. Take him to the hole. So they did, right? But he told me to stick around. He said, son, you've had a miserable time. Here's a lesson you need to learn. If they ain't fighting, fornicating or fleeing, you need to leave them alone. And that sunk in with me. It ain't your job to punish them. They're already punished in the courts. Losing freedom is enough of a punishment. It's not your job to beat them down and break them every single day. We're just hired security for this place. It's really their house. How that translated into regular life for me was, man, stop sweating the small stuff. And let some stuff slide from time to time. I mean, it's not like you're going to let them get away with stuff. If you see it, address it. But don't go looking for problems. Right. And I think for as a, as a society, we want to find the bad or the, the flaws in every single person. If, they, if we could just embrace Lieutenant Barnes's kind of concept of if they ain't fighting, fornicating, or fleeing, I think oh, there'd be a lot more relaxed folks in the world. We'd get along a whole lot better. So Reggie, you never went in and like uh, flipped over some mattresses and checked for contraband or man, my first five months, man, I was I had the gloves, I had the mirror, I, I was that dude, man. I was gonna find it. Like I thought because that's what they taught us in the in the academy, but that but that really ain't. It was just a young person who way overinterpreted what their role was. And I started realizing those people aren't just those people. Everybody in this building human beings. Right. Some of us made some good choice. Some of them made some bad. I ain't the type of person to say every every one of us could switch roles if we had made, you know, if we hadn't got called or had got called. I don't believe that. But I do believe that everybody's human and everybody deserves to be treated as such. And if they act out of pocket and get different, make the adjustment, but then go back to treating them like the human. So that, that's the first rule of life that I got. There's uh, there's so little different sometimes it's such a you're just one or two choices away from or maybe one or two choices of someone else away from being behind that gate mm. like sometimes it can be very little separating the officer and the inmate such very little 
<laughs> I like uh, Caleb's. He would give the inmates the royal Prince Reggie treatment. Oh, nice. it's bad too. It was bad, but I agree with you, man. I mean, like, I don't, I don't say it because a lot of people get offended by it. But, uh, bro, look at what happened to us now. Like, one most people are one paycheck away from bankruptcy, mm -hmm. right? And, and you don't know what you'll do in a desperate state. That's you right. You, you not by choice. I mean, favor, but by choice. You, you put yourself in a situation where you hadn't had to make those choices. But don't judge a man for the choices he made. That's what the courts are for, right? At least when we walk in them tears and walking them, uh, monitoring them kids in supervision. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Oh, yeah. All right, so I got to keep it brief. The second one, um, it, it was kind of a, a big thing, but it really was something that really altered my perception of people in general, especially working with folks. There was this guy that I won't go into detail because I know some people might be watching this, but... Uh, he was just not the most friendly toward the inmates. Like he was just rude and I mean, he found ways to do little dirt stuff. And so he was called in by the supervisor and he was held accountable for it. And the way they did it was kind of, I mean, it was just brazen and I mean, downright just hard. So afterwards, I mean, I really looked up to this one supervisor. I asked him, you know, why did you take that approach? And what he explained was, Reggie, there's two types of mistakes that a man and really a person is going to make, right? There's a mistake of the heart and a mistake of the mind. And it's my job in this position to help suss those out. And when I find one of the two, I have a certain response. If it's a mistake of the mind, that's something easy to correct. I mean, maybe not completely easy, but that's a training session, right? That's some coaching. That's something that, that, that was unintentional. You just didn't know. If you knew better, you'd do better. Let's help you know better. You may have to get, you know, take some medicine behind it, but let, let, that can be kind of forgiven. But when it's a mistake of the heart, that's, I can't, he, what he said was, I can't change a man's heart. No. That when it's willful, when it's intentional, well, then that just doesn't fit in in this environment. And not that that person won't be successful in other places. Maybe that, that, that kind of willful act or that temperament might work somewhere else, but it just wouldn't work in that environment. And what that taught me was that sometimes you're going to have to cut some people out, right? It's called, uh, what is it? Growth by, what, what, what's that phrase I'm trying to use? Subtraction, uh, uh, addition by subtraction. Hmm. And then it, it's not personal. I ain't going to that whole business. It's just not personal. If you want to create an environment, if you want to have a certain approach to things, you have to kind of, you, you, you got to run a hard ship in order to keep people in line. And not necessarily keep you in line, but keep people on the team that's gonna keep their role, they're always rowing in the same direction. And for those who don't, you just gotta cut them. I mean, it, it seems hard, it seems hard, but it's, it's a fact of life. A boat ain't gonna move forward if six rows, I mean, six are going in one direction and three are going in another. Mm -hmm. One time, not just gonna end up going in a circle. <laughs> if you wanna move, if you want progress, if you wanna, really attain something, you got to keep people around you that are going in that same direction. I love yeah. when the person who's working with the, the client, the, the inmate says, uh, well, you can tell I'm doing my job because they all hate me. <laughs> I know you've heard that a million times. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. You know, and I could see that. I could see that extending into education. Like I could see that extending into lots of fields. Like, well, you know why they don't like me? Cause I hold them accountable. Yeah. No, they, they don't like you cause you're a jerk. 
I'm I'm keeping it PG here because you're a jerk. That's why I don't like you. Because you're yelling at them. I I used to get so mad at some of the, when I worked in the maximum security facility, some of the guys that came in and they would, they'd just yell at those guys, those boys, just screaming and yelling and ordering them around. And then I'd come in and say, well, can you please pick up your blah, blah, blah? Or can you please go do this? And they, why do you talk to them like that? I'm like, because they're humans. I wouldn't want anybody yelling at me and, and telling me what to do all day like that. Like, that's why. That's why I talk to them like that. It would it, it would be so frustrating to watch just how some of those some of those people would would talk to those boys. Yeah. And yet they often kind of drive the mission of the place. Right. I mean, people gravitate to them because they seem like the John Wayne's of the group or whatever. And if they don't gravitate to them, nobody really holds their feet to the fire because you don't want to be that guy to call them out when nobody else is calling them out. Right. So it just it, it just festers. And after a while, it just creates a toxic environment for the, the residents and for the people that work with. Them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got if you want to lead and you have a, a path that you own, you're going to have to make some some tough decisions sometime. And you got to hold fast to those decisions. It shouldn't right. be any imminent hauling around it. And that was something that, I mean, I really respect the devil out of it. it was the two Rogers, I, I, Roger Peterson and Roger Galstead. I, gen, I mean, those men taught me so much. It was ridiculous. All right. What's your, uh, what's your final one, man? My final one? I, I, I bounced around between several of them. But um, it, it really boiled down to recognizing if you treat a person like a person, I, I often say treat a man like a man because I work in a lot of uh, male facilities, adult and juvenile. But um, if you treat a man like a man, give him a chance to be a man. More times than not, people will take advantage of that. Right? They used to always call me to run up to the cell and extract folks. But it's not for the reason you think. I didn't go up there and like you know wrestle with him and tear him off. I just go up to the cell and I walk up to him and say, dog, you're going to the hole. You're either going to go walking or you're going to go being carried, but you know you're going. You, but you get to choose. Which one are you going to do? And more times than not, they cuffed up and walked out of the cell. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And, and what that taught me was that most people just want to have, like you said, George, that dignity, right? the, the power of choice, and, and to feel like that they have strength in a situation. And more times than not, and I don't want to label anybody in correction, but they do a hard job. They do. We see people at mm-hmm. the lowest points in their lives. I told you about this earlier, George. I mean, like it's just to to imagine what a correctional officer goes through on a daily basis, whether it's in a juvenile or adult facility, male or female, the things that we see, the average person couldn't handle, right? That's why we have such deplorable humor. Right? We we find ways to to make light of any situation almost. That is true. <laughs> I don't want to make light of a single correctional officer. I think every one of them, even the ones that get on my nerves and I can't stand. They, they're providing a service that many people wouldn't lace up their boots and do. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that um, we, we, we do have a tendency to go in there and become jaded. And uh, because we see people at the lowest point in life, we begin to ascribe that to everybody around us. Mm-hmm. And every inmate that walks through the door, every resident that comes into the facility, we, we just automatically label them and put them in a spot without really giving them a fair chance, mm-hmm. without, it, without really allowing them to, like, make choices and see where, how that plays out. I mean, we got rules we got to follow, of course, but every 
misstep doesn't need to be met with a hammer. Sometimes it's just simple as a redirection, right? Or just acknowledging, hey, you know I saw that. That's just, that's my last rule. Yeah, and and I think that we're also guilty in our line of work of applying, giving someone chemo when what they really need is a Band-Aid. <laughs> you know yes, sir, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, we're just, oh my gosh, that... That kid over there, he he picked a fight with someone and got into a fight. Well, he's violent. He must he's got o, ODD. He's got let's just line up Combat all disorder. the huh. yes, let's just line it's up all the, the different diagnoses that he has and poke and prod him. You know, mm -hmm. come back to that again, and it's like no, no, you just you don't you don't need to do that. All right, so so like here's a, here's a good example. We had orientation night at the nonprofit that I run a few, I don't know, a few years ago, a couple years ago. And, you know, families don't know each other when they show up for orientation. You show up and you meet the other people that are going to go through this experience, this 18-week experience with you. Well, afterwards, one um, guardian comes up to me and says, hey, I'm worried because um, this other kid is in here. And my kid and this kid has had an issue before at school. So I've talked to that other kid and basically asked him, let's keep this PG. I said, hey, uh, I've heard that you had some things to say about this other kid's mom, who's deceased, by the way. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've made, I've, I've made comments about her before. Okay. Well, here's, here's what I need to know. Was he asking for it? No. Okay, well, I have a certain term for that. When you make fun of someone's deceased mom and they're not asking for it, and we'll just say that George said that that's being a jerk. <laughs> and I told him that this program is a jerks need not apply type of place. So I need to know if you're going to continue being a jerk or you're going to stop doing that. He said, I'll stop. Fine. Good. That's what I want to hear. Welcome aboard. And you know what? They were fine. They are fine. That's it. Didn't need 18 weeks of counseling for that issue. <laughs> Didn't need medication? No Didn't medic need medication. Just need some straight talk and uh, someone to peep his game, hold him accountable, and then off we go. There you go. That's really it. Yeah, he can, but we just need a little Band-Aid. We took care of that issue. So more, more of the story tonight, George. Uh, the moral of the story tonight, man, there's a lot of morals uh, in that story right there. A, a lot. I'm going to come back to the, the thread that I keep seeing come through all of this is that everyone's broken. E everyone's broken. And, and we, Reggie, we will, we will put on display at some point on this podcast and it probably won't take us very long. We'll get in. We'll see some headlines in the news. We'll whatever. We'll we'll start talking about something, and and it'll be very easy to just not be gracious, right? As we judge what's happening in our world, and we won't be gracious at all. So, I think we just need to continually remind ourselves that the most broken person that we see every day is in the mirror and uh, give people some grace. And man, life is hard. 
Life is hard. It doesn't matter if you're outside of an institution or inside of one. I think if you're inside one, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's freaking hell. Uh, but life is hard, and we don't need to make it any harder by doing dumb stuff. God knows I've done that to myself. I think I think everyone has. So. All right. Hey, appreciate uh, everyone listening. And uh, again, go to uh, smalltalk.tv and check out the links there. It'll take you to the YouTube page. Um, check out the podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Uh, check it out. Download it. Give us a, 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 a rating on there. It would be absolutely fantastic. That would always help. So uh, thank you all so much for listening. To, Glenn asked tonight as well, will we still be doing this when the COVID-19 pandemic here is over? Uh, this is what he said. He said, uh, are you still going to have this when you go back to work? Uh, work is a relative thing for Reggie and I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a relative thing when you're self-employed. So we'll probably still be doing this. The, the, the difference will probably be that there'll be Tuesdays and Thursdays where Reggie and I are coming to you live from hotels, which is our normal sort of deal. But who knows? I keep hearing about this new normal. and That new normal might include us being at home more than, than on the road and doing more online training and consulting. So I heard, August. I heard August. What'd you hear about August? That we'll be, that it's going to continue until August. Well, we'll see about that. I think we might just uh, have pandemonium. If that's the case. Uh, people are over it. I think that's probably the general consensus. You know, we talked tonight about just human behavior. Meeting needs. Yeah, Absolutely. Four basic needs that human beings have. Fun, love, power, freedom. and freedom. I had fun tonight. I love y'all. Uh, turning on the camera and getting on here gave me a little sense of power, maybe. <laughs> getting out of the house would give me a sense of power. Oh, I got this little mute button. That could give me some power if I like, just muted Reggie if he said something I didn't like. Oh, fun, love, fun, love. Your wife. <laughs> That's right. I'm YouTube, but not Rebecca. Fun, love, power, and freedom. And people want freedom. That's and right. I think that when it's all said, they might sacrifice a little of that for safety, but they only going to do that for so long. That's for sure. So, hey, y'all. Get in all the love, fun, power, and freedom you can. And we'll catch you next Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.